Hello, Annie McLaughlin here for this week's edition of Stick Together, focusing on union news and social justice issues. Stick Together is produced in the studios of 3CR Radio in Melbourne and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. Today's edition is in honour of the International Day of People with a Disability. We celebrate it every year on December the 3rd. And this year on Stick Together, it gives us a chance to go back and find out about disability activists in Australia. They were the people who overturned the myth that disability is a medical issue. They put it squarely in the realm of a human rights issue. And this is reinforced every year, the day we celebrate people with a disability. Interestingly, many of these activists have been women. I spoke with historian Dr Nikki Henningham, whose oral history research in the area made her the right choice for writing the entry on disability activists in the first online Encyclopedia of Australian Women and Leadership. She began by explaining how she became interested in this under-researched area of our recent and continuing history. I'd been interviewing a woman. She had been an arts um, editor and, and journalist on a major metropolitan paper and had a, a hearing impairment. And she said, as you can imagine, being an arts editor, not actually being able to hear or see and so on, but she had felt she couldn't be honest about it because she knew she would lose her job, which she was still perfectly capable of doing. And she, anyway, she only told me this stuff as she was driving me to the airport, having completed the interview, and just started talking to me about um, deafness, deaf communities, issues relating to people with disabilities, and so on and so forth. And I consider myself to be a reasonably um, informed person, but the types of things she was talking about really quite surprised me. And one thing led to another. She got me involved in talking with other people with disabilities, not just hearing impairments. Um, And sort of coincidentally, the National Library, who I do a lot of work for, employed me to do some interviews with Paralympic athletes, men and women. And so I combined those sorts of interests with my long-term interest in writing and doing oral histories with Australian women and writing for online encyclopedia called the Australian Women's Register. So the Australian Women's Register got funded a couple of years ago to write an encyclopedia of women's leadership and I put my hand up and said, well, let me do the, the women, the disability women's advocates. It's, it, it, this stuff is really weird. I all, had also been commissioned to do a small history on an advocacy organisation working in, in Victoria, Women with Disabilities Victoria. I'd done a range of interviews with those women and I don't think I'd met a group of women I'd ever been impressed by more or, and who had taught me more about social justice and human rights. Because yeah. that's truly the uh, crux of the matter, isn't it? That these activists have worked tirelessly to redefine disability as not a medical issue, but as a human rights issue. Correct. Yeah. The the the, the press from the very start was um, to get people to understand that sure they have impairment, but that's not what disables them. It's the social constructions of exclusion that is is the disability and the people outside who are the disability, yeah. yeah. And it's quite interesting because as I've been reading various parts of this work that you've done, there's lots of letters 
um, I, I have wars with letters, uh, acronyms, and I fi- found it really fascinating that actually in that community they talk about so-called able-bodied people as... Not yet disabled, yeah. yeah. NYDs, <laughs> yes. Not yet disabled. That was something that I really... I. I really enjoyed that, and I, can't, I think this might actually be an American scholar who who coined this phrase, which was that handicapism is the only ism we are likely to all encounter at some stage unless we die early, and that notion that we might all actually be disabled at some stage is what some academics or activists say is part of the reason why we don't want to talk about it, and we haven't actually given it much attention, that it's it's too close to the bone that we could all feel it. Whether or not that's a fair a fair assessment of it is one thing, but it is certainly the it is the ism we can all actually experience at some stage in our lives. In uh, the activists that you've looked at, female activists that uh, have been basically there's two two difficulties in uh, resurrecting the work that these people and honouring the work that these people have done in the uh, mainstream is that uh, one, as you said, the handicapism that people are frightened so they don't do mm. the history of it, but also there's the uh, underrepresentation of women as recognised leaders. Mm, mm. It within that. Movement itself, or in, in, in general, in both. general. Oh yes, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's what they do call that that double disadvantage. Yeah, and there there was one. I didn't interview this woman um, because as a, she she's severely hearing impaired, and the challenges of doing an interview with someone who was severely hearing impaired um, is a whole other story, I suppose. Um, she didn't lip read, and so that made things difficult. But an Indigenous woman who was handicapped uh, with a disability, um, triply, <laughs> triply um, disadvantaged. So, the, yeah, the the difficulty in in actually getting access to people who could be interviewed for these various projects, um, apart from the Paralympians, because we all love our sport in Australia and there are, you know, lists and so on, it was it was, it was profound and it did actually come through the project that I did with Women's with Disabilities Victoria, by getting involved in that, I was then put into networks with other people. Probably, I wouldn't say, you know, uh, I would probably suggest that that, Wim, that Victoria was a very central point for that activism from the very start. There were there were places in Sydney, there were there were sort of out, you know, grassroots organisations in Sydney, but. As an organised sort of movement, Victoria, I think, would, would be ahead of the, the pack um, in the 70s, certainly. Well, it, there are key people who were involved from the 1970s. Um, there are actually people from much earlier who uh, were activists in relation to blindness, for example. Mm-hmm. Tilly Aston, yeah, who um, helped to establish the um, the Royal Victorian Institute for the Blind. And she did actually leave a really moving memoir that can be downloaded, actually. It's been published, but it's actually readily accessible via the web. Um, and she was um, extraordinary friends, What a really quite international woman. She was friends with, with Helen Keller and had co- correspondence with her regularly. Um and I suppose you could say that she was one of one of the first uh, women, I guess, to feel to feel that she was not taken seriously, or rather that because she bitched and moaned about stuff that was peculiar to women, 
um, that she was dismissed as somewhat hysterical or you know not you know not working on the serious side of things and so that that I guess that notion that women's issues were secondary to men's issues started very early on. So yeah, there were people like her. There were people like the woman who set up a play centre for people with disabilities Oh, in the 50s. People like her who were setting up places where people could at least allow their children to feel normal for a while rather than being excluded in the home because of course that was one of the biggest, the big problems too for parents who had children with disabilities to actually find places where they could... Um, be children without being institutionalised was was a very was a very important thing. Margaret Cooper is probably the person who I do I have the most fondness for. I don't know. Perhaps that's not the right word. But as an activist, she was astounding. She contracted polio, and a brother and a sister older than her who managed not to to be affected by the bug, but she was. However, she came from a, a medical family who firmly believed that she was not going to get away with anything, um, that she was just going to be treated as any child should be. And so she always thought of herself as being normal. And in fact, when she got to school, she actually found that things were reasonably... People tried to, to sort of accommodate her as well at school, that there was not this sense even at school that she was all that different. It was really only when she she got to work that she start, and and tried to to live an independent life as an adult that she she got active and started getting really irritated by managed care where people were you know peep, peeping into their bedrooms to see whether or not people were having sex or what have you you know this notion that they that they could not live ordinary normal active adult lives is what really radicalized her Plus spending, you know, months and months in hospital watching the way people were infantilised and so on and so forth. Um, so she, she had this lived experience of being, of being able and yet becoming disabled by the people around her. And she moved with a crowd of people who were heavily influenced by movements in the United States like so much of the activism in the late 60s and early 70s found its way to Australia. And early on, kind of thought my life was over. Um, my reaction to it was not uh, depression, which many people do experience, but anger. Um, I was really ticked off at everybody, and I couldn't frame it. I just, all I could, I just knew inside that things didn't seem fair. But I didn't have terminology for it. Um, eventually, I went back out into the world and um, uh, was home one day and the director of nursing at Prentice Woman's Hospital, who I'd never met but where I was working, uh, called me um, uh, and said, how would you like to come back to work? And I should say that I'd lost my job. I'd lost my home. My home had seven stairs. Um, I was a bus rider, didn't know how to drive a car, so I had no way to get around. There was no public transit. Um, I didn't have any income. I lost my health insurance. Um, I was, you know, not sure how my bills were going to get paid for. Um, and when I went out into the world, uh, I experienced what most people at that time did. Uh, people making fun of you, uh, people ignoring you. In any, in any case, that was for me what it was like. Um, the, if you went out into the city during this period to go out to dinner, um, most often you would go through the kitchen 
because the front entrances were not accessible. Um, when I went to museums, um, I can tell you the planetarium, the only way to get into the planetarium at the time was an exterior elevator that uh, was the garbage elevator. And um, I rode that garbage elevator one time in the dark because the light went out. And when the doors opened, I'd heard this little rustling. There was a big old rat in that garbage elevator. So um, back to the day that uh, Judy uh, called me, the director of nursing at Northwestern, she called and asked me if I wanted to come back to work. Now this happened, probably had to have been about five months after I broke my neck. I was back home. Uh, my world had shrunk. Um, I was lonely. And the words that came out of my mouth for this advocate, for this feisty woman, still shocked me. When she said that to me, I said, I can't work. Um, in five months, I had done what sociologists would call internalizing oppression. I had already begun to redefine who I was and didn't even know I was doing it. Um, but she said, come on in and talk. And I now always think of her as my guardian angel. She, uh, she, uh, she gave me the opportunity that even to this day so many disabled people don't get, the opportunity to go back out into the world and work. Um, I went back to work as a nurse in the clinic. I did not love my job. I was under-challenged, but it was a job, and I was, you know, I had to figure out how to get to work, and it, it, it paid my bills. She sent me to a conference in California, in Berkeley, on sex and disability. And that's where I discovered I had rights. That's where I got a civil rights framework. Believe it or not, it was in the appendix of a little handbook on birth control. There was something in the appendix called Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act. The minute I saw that, for, and I'm sure most of you know what that is, it was the precursor to the ADA that said, uh, if you receive federal funds, uh, or you're the federal government, you can't discriminate on the basis of disability. And all of a sudden, I had a new paradigm through which to see my experience, the paradigm I'd been raised in, the paradigm that my brother had fought for, that the civil rights movement, that Gloria Steinem, et cetera, had fought for. And no longer did I see this stuff as attitudinal barriers. I saw it as what it was, discrimination. And then I also realized there was something I could do about it. Um, it was one of the first times that I really had a chance to talk candidly about my feelings about this stuff. But also, I asked her, how come everything's different out here? How come um, there's curb cuts everywhere? There were only about six in downtown Chicago. How come people aren't staring at me in the restaurants? And she told me a story. She said, there's a group of ad advocates at the campus of UC Berkeley um, they worked to make the campus accessible, and then later they took it out into the community. So when I flew back, I remembered, wow, not only did I see the world through a different lens, a new paradigm, I found my place in that world, that I had a responsibility to get involved. That was the voice of pioneering 70s U.S. disability activist Maka Bisto, who was recorded in 2014 by Chicago Access Network Television. 
In Australia, the same civil rights framework was making its mark as disabled people advanced the slogan, Nothing About Us Without Us. Dr Nikki Henningham. Uh, Nothing About Us Without Us. Yeah. That yeah. slogan. Yeah. The... um. Uh, I guess as the the critical mass of of people um, involved in the activism and also the education status, I guess as well. There, as 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 more and people became involved, uh, there was a real anxiety that they were permitted to talk for themselves. As mentioned about Margaret Cooper, as she was living out of home, the patronising and the paternalism that surrounded adult people and guided their every movement was possibly the most galling thing. And I guess you'll know about the International Year of the Disabled Person in 1981. Yeah. Um, It was a huge opportunity for people with disabilities to feel that they could get their issues out in public domain and present themselves and so on and so forth. And now I've got to jump in here because yeah. this is where uh, the these uh, fantastic women activists involved themselves and talked to Philip Adams, who had been given the job. But they've got this fantastic little quote about how he was uh, sort of revo- uh, creating a, a campaign around the idea of a super crips. That's correct. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, now Philip Adams, when he, w- he was working in advertising at the time, and they'd been given the, um, the job of promoting the year through advertising and I think he says to himself I, I I spent about five minutes I had it all sorted out I'd have you know Franklin Delano Roosevelt Stephen Hawking all these major people who had achieved super and who were super crips as um women the the people well, as he referred to them um and um he was contacted by a, a trio of quite formidable women Elizabeth Hastings Edith Hall and Rhonda Garbley, they all arrived at Philip Adams' office, which was inaccessible. But to ah, it was interesting. Not, yeah, it was not an accessible office. And they expressed to him their delight that he was um, taking on this job but wanted to tell him that basically he was a buffoon and that this whole notion of uh, super crypt just had to, it had to go and that people with disabilities needed to be able to speak for themselves to talk about their own issues and that that should be the focus of the campaign. And once again, Philip Adams was easily convinced by this. The campaign then became one where he and his campaign, you know, his project officers would travel around Australia with one or other of those three women interviewing people and then showing those interviews on television. The, and the slogan was breaking down the barriers. Breaking down the barriers, that's right. And and, and so the barriers were obviously, uh, the, the I guess the intention was that we needed to work hard. We, you know, N, NYDs needed to work hard at breaking down those barriers too. And that we... Yeah, it was a two-way street. A two-way and, and, street, And as yeah. you said, it was, it's not a medical issue, it's a human rights issue. Yeah, yeah. That was a world, that won the world campaign... Uh, advertising campaign for the entire world that year. It's extraordinary, yeah. yeah. And I mean, you you you'll remember the ads, and yeah. you'll remember the the song and the jingle and so on and so forth. It was it was a very effective um, ad, and I think the and I think one of the things that was so was so powerful about it was that people with disabilities themselves actually thought, "Whoa, we are being listened to. We are now being heard." Um, and it was an exhausting year for most of them, 
but it was a very important one for them because they also got the opportunity to say that they were sick of being seen as some the source of inspiration or what have you that that being that disability did should not and did not have to be seen as something to be overcome but something that could be embraced normalized it was just part of the human condition that's right yeah Everybody will ask, what can we do for disabled people? Well, there really is a big, big question of what can disabled people do for you? And I'm now going to release the balloons. I'm sorry they weren't pigeons as advertised, but the bloody pigeons are mating. You're with me, Annie McLaughlin, on Stick Together. Today's edition is in honour of the International Day of People with a Disability, celebrated each year on December the 3rd. I'm speaking with historian Dr Nikki Henningham about her research into Australian women disability activists. Well, John, here we are, seven beautiful ladies there, all awaiting uh, the decision which you are about to announce. I'll stand back. Well, this is a very exciting moment for all of us. Regardless of their ableness, there were many many people at that time who felt particularly concerned about their yeah the, the way that their their physical appearance was seen as deformed or mm-hmm. marginal or what have you and the battleground for which that was mo- we probably remember most was in in Australia was the Miss Victoria quest and the Miss Australia quest um where the fun- where funds were raised for um what was now, what was then called the Spastic Society, and so funds were raised in by by beautiful girls entering this contest. It's quite bizarre, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, and uh, a, a large group of of women with disabilities protested at, at an event in Melbourne, saying, "Why can't we actually enter this competition?" They were not permitted to do so. Um, why can't we enter this competition? It's about us and there should be nothing about us without us. Um, yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> and a magnificent woman, Leslie Hall, managed yeah. to get herself up on stage and there's a great picture of her. She's a stunning-looking woman um, with the getting up on stage, um, marking this protest that, um, yeah, that, and, and making the point repeatedly that their bodies were as attractive as anybody else's and that it was, it was people that, and that there was something completely deformed about a contest which marginalised them in that way. Um, and they got very little sympathy. They got very little sympathy. Um, the, the, it had a bigger impact. It had a big impact. Um, uh, I mean, because I can remember thinking, because I lived in the country at the time, I was thinking, well, actually, you're right. Yeah, 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 you know, absolutely. How weird yeah. that we've all been... I mean, I always thought... I was t- always deeply uncomfortable about those competitions. Yeah. But and I found them all a bit s- 
sick, really. Yeah. But then when they actually pointed out the connection between the fundraising who knew they were doing it for, it was even sicker. They're absolutely. But the but people who were involved with the quest considered them to be ungrateful. So um, what, that uh, so-called disabled people are an extension of... Uh, not yet disabled people's desire for charity. Absolutely, yeah. To bestow charity. Yeah, exactly. And so, yeah, once again, it, it also tapped into that frustration about see, being seen as charity cases, yeah. you know, as, as non-productive members of society. And so this extraordinary sort of tension relating to the way their bodies were perceived and obviously the impact that that had on their own self-esteem did lead to this sort of flourishing of a variety of groups, often disability segmented, sort of support groups, but then groups such as Women with Disabilities Victoria that crossed all, all you know, sectors came together in the first instance to provide that sort of social support. They don't like using the word consciousness raising isn't quite right, but in the first instance, these sorts of groups of women sought to help re-establish self-esteem and to to um, get women from all around Victoria to understand that they actually had a purpose and a worth and they should be entitled to advocate on their own behalf. There's still this notion that there's the real people and then there's the others who have to deal with what the real people have set, left for them. Yeah, that's and, and that's one of the things that actually was quite interesting when talking with people, so for instance like... um. Karen Howe, who is president of Women with Disabilities Victoria, and she said she she had a, a, a bad car accident um, when she was about nineteen, and you know struggled as you would with dealing with the new her after having the accident. Um, and her story is really um, a very interesting one. But she said there was some sort of epiphanic isn't quite the point, but she just got really sick and tired of people looking at her in the chair, people who didn't know her looking at the chair in the chair and, and looking and at her and thinking they can have a conversation with her. Thinking they can say to her, oh, what, hap- what happened to you, dear? How are you? And she said one day, she just said, <laughs> I'm fine, thanks for asking. And that notion that the fact that you were, she was in the chair, people hadn't moved along enough to recognise that that chair wasn't a disability for her anymore. To yeah. be in the chair it's was an enabler life. and it's who she is and she's fine. And that notion that it, it, that people still feel that they can ask those questions is, is really quite interesting. The way in which just as, you know, racism, sexism or understandings of race and gender are socially constructed, our understanding of disability is socially constructed as well. That's it for Stick Together today. Thanks to you for listening. We have to thank Dr Nikki Henningham for speaking to us. Stick Together is produced at 3CR Studios in Melbourne and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. The podcast is available at 3cr.org.au and you can contact the producers of the show at stick.together at gmail.com or by calling 03 9419 8377. My name's Annie McLaughlin. I wish you a happy International Day of People with a Disability. Catch you next time.